I'm Zach Abramowitz, and I am Legally Disrupted. On this week's episode of Zach Abramowitz is Legally Disrupted, we speak to the one and only Otto Miguel Hansen, founder of TermScout. Disclosure, I am an investor in this amazing company, and Otto shares his vision for TermScout with us. We also talk about how tech companies are having to pivot in an age of chant GPT. We talk about how TermScout is doing that, and then we talk about Otto's seamless transition from lawyer to tech entrepreneur. Let's get disrupted. What is Term Scout and why did you start? Why did you have to build Term Scout? Let me set the table with a little bit of background on who we are, what we do. So look, Term Scout came about when I was practicing law at a large regional firm in Denver and a client who I respected very much came to me and said, Otto, as our lawyer, I want you to change our contract and I want you to make it really, really aggressive, like make it very one-sided. We win and our customers lose. And I said, oh, interesting. Okay, why, why are we doing this? And he said, we looked at the data and it's very clear. No one ever reads our contract. We have a one-to-many contract. It's one contract that's getting signed over and over and over again. And no one opens it. No one ever reads it. So therefore, Might as well. we should make it as aggressive as humanly possible. And there was something about that you know, mentality that I didn't quite jive with, but setting aside the, the moral issues there, you know, the realization that I had was that that's actually the very rational thing to do. And as I zoomed out of that specific transaction and started looking at all the other contracts I was negotiating, I was a technology transactions attorney in the corporate group. So I was doing a lot of software licensing deals. And I was, you know, this attorney in this big firm that was in the middle of these transactions. And I quickly realized that that opportunistic attitude that my client very explicitly expressed was actually the status quo that we live in today. That's the standard norm. That's the standard attitude. If you find yourself in a position where you're drafting a contract that thousands or millions of people are going to sign over and over again, you quickly realize, wow, why, why would we do anything other than make this very one-sided? And so we live in this kind of convoluted world, this, I think, unfortunate world where there's an imbalance and where there are imbalances, I think there are economic opportunities and the big interesting part of this is, you know, we live in a world today, Zach, you know this, we've talked about this, where contracts are omnipresent. They're everywhere. They govern virtually every transaction that we're a part of, whether it's downloading an app on our phone, purchasing a car, borrowing money, you know, businesses, it's the same except on steroids because they're doing so many more transactions. I mean, billions and billions of contractual transactions. And contract law is kind of an archaic creature. It came about, modern contract law came about in the 17th century. And one of the core doctrines of contract law, of course, is whether or not you read it, we don't really care. If you sign it, you are bound by it. That's a core principle of contract laws all around the world, basically. And that made a lot of sense in the 17th century, if you think about it, because back then, the average person might enter into just a few contracts each year. You know, you're taking all the money you saved up to buy an asset. If, if that. If that. And like that contract, you're going to read and you're going to understand that if it is the instrument, you know, that governs this big investment that you're making. It's a once in a lifetime or a few times in a lifetime instrument. And so it made sense, you know. But fast forward the clock to where we are today, where we're just the volume of transactions around the world is so, so high that actually we know that most people and businesses actually don't and can't read all of the contracts they sign. So here we are with this sort of old legal system that frankly, there's not really a better legal answer to the problem because we need contracts. They're a very important mechanism that supports our economic system as we know it. If you signed, you signed, but I mean, it can lead to disasters. It can lead to disasters because every contract we sign is a legally binding set of rights and obligations and the obligations. Well, if you if you haven't read them, how do you how do you you know comply with them? 
And the rights that you get in contracts, well, again, if you don't know what they are, how do you exercise them? I mean, you're from Colorado. I'm sure you know there's the South Park, you know, that mocked this concept where one of the kids has like signed and and agreed to like the Apple or whatever terms of service it was. And it involves him having to like be part of a human centipede in this terrible prison. So it's like, you know, well, listen, you signed on the contract. Didn't you think to review it? So that's because it's one thing to know that I'm selling you X for Y dollars. It's another thing to know how Y dollars compares to market, because if it's way better than market, wow, that's really important context to help me understand whether this transaction is good. But if Y dollars is actually way more expensive than market, okay, that very much changes my perspective on what you're offering me. There's something very core and human about the belief not wanting to get bamboozled. I don't know if people, you know, realize this, that so much of what lawyers spend their time on is figuring out if their clients are agreeing to a contract or contract terms that are market. What's market, right? That is the primary goal of lawyers very often. And this can be, you know, in a software services agreement, and it can also be in a major M&A. Nobody wants to do something where they feel like, oh, the rest of the market did this. And then there was some special rule that applied to me. It's very human. That's why I say that. Well, it is. It's superhuman. I agree. And and you're right. It's a dialogue that's happening between lawyer and client in almost every contract that's getting reviewed. And there's the human reason for it, Zach, but there's also maybe an even bigger reason, which is legal malpractice. Legal malpractice doctrine says basically If you advise your client to do something and, you know, the average attorney would have advised the same thing, cool, you're safe. But if you advise your client to do something and almost no other attorney would advise them to do it, that's dangerous turf to be in as an attorney. So when you review a contract, getting that market data, that that's like your guide to how to stay out of trouble almost. It's like, hey, Whoa, if the market data suggests that only 1% of people of this contract signing this type of contract agree to this provision, like, whoa, ding, 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 I want to make sure I'm advising my client accordingly, right? And it may still make sense for that specific set of facts, right? I don't want to ignore the the reality that the contract, you know, you could have a bad contract that makes a ton of sense in a certain fact pattern because you need the service really bad or, you know, it's the only provider, whatever it is, like, Contract's only one piece of a transaction, but still, as the lawyer who's reviewing it, you need to understand, you know, how good it is, what it is, what the consequences are. And I think you need that market perspective as well to help you calibrate that sort of that analysis. This will be great if I get live investor updates. What a bomb. What an interesting peek behind the scenes that would be. Let me ask, what's the exciting update? What do I get to hear? Exciting update on TermScout right now is GPT-4, as you can imagine, has dramatically accelerated our business and accelerated the timelines for us to bring our vision to life. I was on a podcast actually just a few months ago. I played it for my team recently. And the interviewer asked me, he said, so five years from now, where do you hope Term Scout is? And I said, I hope that in five years, you, you know, in your capacity as an individual or a business person, can go upload any contract to Term Scout and instantly understand what it means, how good it is, how it compares to market in an accurate and reliable way. And being able to do that well for any contract type, we used to think was five years out because the way we used to train AI took a long, long time and was laborious and took a lot of investment. And we're at this place now where we can actually expand into many, many contract types way faster. And we're launching new contract types. Right now, we've got the ability to use AI to review two contract types on our app. But within the next four to six weeks, we're hoping to get eight more contract types live. Including from two to eight, from two from two to ten, from two to ten. Excuse including me. Including convertible notes, uh, safes, NDAs, lease agreements, stock option agreements, loan agreements, a number of contract types supported. We'll also have the ability. Actually, we just launched this. 
we've got an AI chatbot that you can go in and interact with GPT-4 directly within the app. And, you know, there's not a lot of competitive advantage to that particular piece of technology. It's truly just GPT-4, but we can get your contract into the app and we can get you set up in a safe, secure sandbox environment where we can guarantee that your contract data isn't being used by open AI to train the large language models. And that's one of the privacy security concerns that I think it's, a lot of people are are worried about, rightfully so. It's a concern that everyone mentions to me. Meaning right. after I'm done sort of dazzling them with like, you know, what can AI do for you? Then there always comes the question, every presentation I give, which is where is the data? And I, I kind of punt on that question. I'll tell you exactly what I say. And then I want to hear your answer. What I typically say is, listen, a lot of this is very new. You're going to have to evaluate it, but Microsoft has invested in this company and Microsoft is going to put it out there in all of its various products. Hard for me to believe Microsoft is not going to take care of security concerns. This is like their bread and butter. They know how to do everything that it's, they need to do in order to please businesses and they'll pass all the audits. So I, I know that's sort of punting, but I think it also sort of speaks to a more general point with a lot of this AI, which is that like the rate of progress here is not something we're used to. And whatever you've sort of said in the past, oh, well, that's not going to be the case because it's not a great precedent. There's not a lot of great precedents for this. Yeah, I agree with the proposition that, look, Sam Altman has come out and said very clearly, we want to be effectively, I don't think he used this word, but we want to be a utility. Right. We want to build infrastructure that companies like TermScout and others can use safely. And he and his team know full well that security is going to be front and center concern of that. So I'm generally on board and very bullish on the possibility or likelihood that they're going to get the privacy and security stuff figured out in a way that makes economic sense for companies like us to build on top of the technology. Um, and if he doesn't, other companies will. And, you know, I'm generally of the belief that while OpenAI is the first and very clearly the best right now, I think there will be other large language models that come and catch up and offer competitive services that that will improve the uh, availability. And some of the other issues, like one of the big challenges with OpenAI right now is the rate limiting. You know, if you are using OpenAI's APIs, you have very serious rate limits in terms of how much data you can send to it and how quickly you can get it back. And it's a big challenge for every company building on top of OpenAI's APIs right now. Sam Altman just came out, I think a week ago or so in a blog post and said, it's one of our top priorities to improve rate limits and reduce pricing on GPT-4 model. Right. And to your point, I've actually already had people tell me, hey, listen, I've been using Bard and it is really incredible. And in some ways, better than than chat gpt so assume that's where we're headed is that there will be essentially a, an arms race between all of the biggest tech companies as well as some of the groups that have been at ai companies like as an example there's a company here based in israel called ai 21 labs they're essentially a spin out of mobileye which was a company working in the ai space so you know you're getting a lot of the best technical talent that's going to these companies or that's starting their own labs to build out these products. There's going to be the one race, but then this is an analogy that I've heard Chamath Palahapatiya use. And I, I'm curious how you, how you see it applying to term scout. He says that there were companies that made money on inventing the concept of refrigeration. He says, but the companies that really made the most money on refrigeration were companies like Coca-Cola. Companies that began to operate in a world where refrigeration was possible and saw the opportunities that it creates. So how do you see that applying to TermScout? And I want you to answer that question, but let's take people back as we just jumped right into this. And then we're going to get to the question of refrigeration and Coca-Cola. How is the typical user of TermScout actually interacting with the software let me set the table with a little bit of background, and then we'll talk about, do we want to be a refrigerator or Coca-Cola? And I think there's a pretty clear answer for us, at least. And I love that quote, by the way. I also listened to that episode of the All In podcast and have repeated that metaphor a number of times. 
So we we really do two things. We try to help two sides of the transaction. Our beachhead market, where we started, was in software contracts, IT contracts, SaaS, software, pass, all of that. And the reason we started there is because software contracts are one world of contracts that are very high volume. Every business is buying lots of software these days. Also very high risk, right? Software programs, SaaS programs in particular, like we're uploading our data to you know, your servers, you got access to our data. There's a lot IP risks. There's a lot of nuance to software contracts. So it's an interesting market. And that's why we spend a lot of time there. We're broadening to a number of new contract types as we speak. But in software contracts, we do two things. If you are a software vendor, we help you make your contract good. We help you benchmark your contract to understand where you are in the market. Are you one of those really aggressive vendors that's asking for a lot of sub-market provisions? Sometimes we hear vendors say, yeah, we are that, and that's who we want to be. That's fine. You're not a good customer for us, but that's fine if that's who you want to be in the market. But for software vendors who actually say, we want to be reasonable to our customers, we want to treat our customers fairly, all the way down to the fine print, and we want to have a contract that is fair and balanced right up front so that we can skip the whole contract negotiation piece. I don't wanna negotiate limits of liability with every single customer. I just wanna move to market and then prove to my customers that I'm at market and eliminate contracting negotiations. For software vendors like that, we offer a contract certification product. So we say, first, let's make sure that your contract actually is that, that it's good, that it's market, that it's reasonable for your customers. So we almost negotiate against the vendor on behalf of their customers to get that contract to that- At scale at scale to get that contract to that fair and balanced place. And then we prove it. By the way, I can screen share if that would enhance this. Um, Absolutely. Sh show us show us a badge. Yeah. So give me a second to pull one up. And, and, I'll, and, and while you're pulling that up, I'll, I'll say that, first of all, you know, as I mentioned in my intro, I invested in Term Scout and I loved the concept of the badge from day one. Now I, I have a, a different badge that I interact with anytime I'm in America um, and I'm looking for kosher food, right? I could look at the ingredients, but I know that most people who observe the dietary restrictions imposed by Judaism, keeping kosher, we actually look for a badge, right? And there are badges and I don't know if people will notice them or looking for them. There's several, there's the OU, there's a star K, there's a bunch. But the idea of a badge and the confidence that it gives the consumer about transparency into the process, I've seen this and like the power that it can have. The other thing I love about the badge, and people are going to see this in a minute, is so much of the resistance to legal technology is lawyers not wanting to learn something new. Right. And as I've pointed out, because I've, I've mentioned the badge when I've presented at conferences, what I love about the Term Scout badge is it actually doesn't require anything from the user. The idea is we're going to use technology. You don't actually have to be interacting with it. We're just going to sort of put this on your contract. Um, so if you want to share your screen and, and show me one of these badges. Yep. Uh, and 100% agree with you there, Zach. Look, badges and certification products make sense anywhere where there's an information asymmetry problem. So an information asymmetry problem exists in the production of food. I don't know. I don't have the information about how you produce this. So having a third party that can come in and certify that certain standards were met makes a lot so of sense in food. This is gluten-free. This is vegan-friendly, right? And it impacts huge numbers of people. And contracts are, are similar in a lot of ways. The information asymmetry problem is not quite as intractable because it's not that you can't figure out what it is. It's that there's a lot of legal jargon here and you need a lawyer, ideally a lawyer who understands software contracts to dig through all this and help me understand what it means, you know, how it compares to market and all of that. So what we're trying to do is just automate that and standardize it and help people understand that like if the contract meets certain standards. So this is Figma. We're on their website, figma.com. This is their uh, software services agreement that they offer their customers. And this is what the badge looks like on their page. And, you know, here's another one from and if you click and if you click if you click on that, what happens? Yes. If you click on this, you go into uh, a, what we call the certified contract report. So this is an ungated page on our website that we maintain that has our real time data that's updated anytime they change their contract real time data 
on exactly how good or bad this contract is, um, how it compares to similar contracts. They're a software company based out of Silicon Valley, how their contract compares to a bunch of other big companies in similar markets. You've got some topic analysis that you can go and see sort of how they're handling. You can get a taste for the amount of data. This is the data that TermScout has just on the reps and warranties section of this particular contract. So just a taste of kind of how in-depth our analysis is. You can see there are a lot more topics here. You do have to create a free account if you want to go in and see all of the data that we have on this contract, but it's free. It's very easy to do. All you need is an email address. So uh, Jerry Levine, who's the general counsel of Contract Pod AI, another contract technology company. This was not something that you set up. I happened to have been uh, on the exhibit Florida at a in-house conference. I think it was the ACC conference. And I started talking to Jerry and I said, hey, have you heard of Term Scout? And he said, wait, come on over here. And he pulls me over to his laptop and he shows me that Contract Pod AI has the badge, right? And I said, wow, he said, this has changed my life. I no longer have to negotiate anymore. Anytime someone wants to discuss our contract, I simply point them to the badge and it shows that we are the most customer friendly contract in our CLM vertical. And I thought that was amazing because again, so often the people who are purchasing legal technology and this applies to any technology then have to learn how to use that. They have to change their work habits here. That doesn't exist with this badge, which is why it is such a, a magical concept. Yeah. I mean, there's virtually no adoption, no change management that has to happen. This is, if you're a legal operations professional, this is the easiest slam dunk win you can imagine. Again, if you can get your company to agree to have a reasonable contract. And that's a big if. We know 50% plus of the market isn't there yet. But, you know, for those that are, and you're right, uh, Jerry's got a great contract and do a shout out to Bond Terms uh, Standard Cloud Agreement, which is what they base their contract off of. It's a great contract. It is a balanced contract. And the, the particular instance of that form of agreement that Jerry has put together is in the top 4% of all the IT vendor contracts we've looked at, it's a couple thousand vendor contracts. I mean, this is a very, very customer-friendly contract. So yeah, Jerry's getting a lot of value out of this because he and his sales team were explaining this to their customers this whole time. They're like, guys, you can sign our contract. It's okay. It's a reasonable contract. We're not those guys that are making really bad contracts out there, we promise. But their customers hear that with every software tool that every sales guy says that. So to have some data to back it up, to actually prove it, is really a game changer for some of these companies. You know, exactly. So, so wait, uh, hold on a second. I want to cut you off for a minute because you, so you mentioned a lot of the work that you do on the vendor side. But now what if I'm a big company and I sign agreements and not every agreement I'm signing has the Term Scout badge yet? We're going to get there. But in other words, let's say they're not all there yet. What then, how then can my company use TermScout for contracts that don't have the badge? It's a great question, Zach. I want to give you one data point on the vendor side before we move over to that uh, and answer what we do on the buy side of the house. So on the sell side of the house, just I want to share, we talked about how it's really easy to implement. That's a no brainer. It's an inexpensive product. There are very few reasons not to do this, except for, well, does it work? And so I wanted to show exactly, it's a great example of yeah. a company that tracks data on this really, really well. Their GC has been tracking this. Their deal cycles went from 44 days down to nine days after implementing the batch. Like that's the reduction in deal cycles that they experienced. And they did a really good job rolling this out. Like they're in the upper echelons, I think, of certified customers because some customers put the badge on and just kind of, you know, let it let it sit there. Exactly went out and said, we're going to train our sellers, our account execs on how to get the deal done on our paper. And by the way, we help our customers. We've got lots of training resources and sales playbooks to help you and your sales team figure out how to get the deal done on your paper. But the results that they got out of this were just remarkable. I mean, their GC told us that their legal team got a standing ovation at the sales 
kickoff call after putting this together because the sales team was so happy that the legal team had finally come together and become the sort of sales partner or business partner that every legal team wants to, aspires to, and promises to be. There's so many memes about the relationship between the sales team and the legal team and the legal team are the deal killers. But here they accelerated it. It sounds like I'm not check my math here, but, you know, 44 to nine, that's like massive, massive that's like, reduction in deal cycles. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Wild. It, you know, there's just such a huge ROI on that. And you obviously if you close a deal, you know, 30 days sooner than you otherwise would have, you're getting it on the books 30 days sooner, you're getting 30 days of extra revenue. These are subscription SaaS products. So sooner you get it, the more revenue you're getting in that particular quarter, year, whatever it is you're measuring. So this has real world implications on the bottom line of the business. And the training really just has to be towards the sales team to like, let them know, hey, point them here. Meaning that's what you mean when you say, don't just leave the badge up, but actually tell your team to make this a part of the strategy. Exactly. Got totally. it. So, okay. That's an amazing case study. And I'm just going to flex for you because I know it's not necessarily your way, but you have badged some of the biggest technology companies in the world, IBM, Datadog. You are working with some of the absolute top software companies out there, NetApp. Who else? We've got Figma, IBM, Airtable, Canva, um, Qualtrics, Avaya, uh, the list goes on. You're right. We're super lucky to be working with some incredible companies that really are at the forefront of contracting efficiencies and contract balance contracts and the like. So these companies often find us, they see the badge somewhere and they say, whoa, we're a company that's trying to be fair and balanced with our contract. This seems like something we could use. So it's working really, really well. And yeah, we're really excited about this product. So let's then shift over for a moment. Tell me how we work if we're not on the vendor side, but if we're on the purchaser side. Yeah. So if you're a buy side attorney in a company, so, you know, procurement attorney, anything like that, you're reviewing lots of inbound vendor agreements. Our goal is to do the exact same thing we're doing to give you the exact same data that we're giving our certified customers, but in a format that you can apply to any inbound contract that comes in. So I pulled up the OpenAI terms of use because it's a hot topic and a fun one to go look at and a contract that we should all understand because we're all using it, right? And so what oh, you- I read it. I read it very, very carefully before I signed up. I'm sure you did <laughs> and so did we. And so the first thing you get when you, you know, the whole idea of the buy side services is, is you've got lots and lots of incoming contracts in your organization and you need to triage those, right? You need to figure out which of these do need to go to legal for a careful review, which can be handled by procurement or contract managers or the business, you know, depending on the size of your organization. But like, it's a triage solution, really. It's a way of helping you quickly sort those that are good to go for signature and those that are not. So the first thing you get when you upload a contract we have two levels of review at TermScout 2. You can get a contract for, that's pure AI level of review. Accuracy at ranges between 85 and 99%. Or you can get a contract that's verified by human beings on our team. For more larger enterprise, more risk-averse organizations, a lot of our customers you know, end up using the verified service because they want to basically eliminate all of the risk that AI introduces. So we offer both those services this is a view of the open A con the, the the contract review looks the same whether it's verified or predicted. It's just the accuracy that changes. So what you get when you upload a contract to TermScout is a rating. This rating is a, a pretty sophisticated algorithm that looks at basic hundreds and hundreds of substantive data points within the contract uh, and rates the contract on favorability. And this is to the idea here is to give you the quick gut check. Is this one of those companies that took the hey, let's take a pretty one-sided, we win, you lose approach? Yeah. Or is this a company that's actually trying to be reasonable and balanced? And it's not perfect. These are subjective ratings. You could argue them um, and we do sometimes. And, you know, but but it gives you a gut sense, uh, you know, how to posture yourself in this transaction. So I can see the open AI contract got a rating of 100% vendor favorable. It looks like it's pretty aggressive in terms of favoring the vendor. You've got a term sheet here. 
that quickly summarizes the key topics in the agreement, the limits on liability for each party, the indemnities and the like. So for example, the indemnification by vendor section, it says OpenAI does not indemnify the customer for any claims. So this is a pretty sub-market provision. You know, we get market data in everything that we do. So we could go see how common is it for the vendor to not indemnify the customer for anything? Well, f that happens 42% of the time in vendor forms. But guess what? When we look at negotiated contracts, only 8% of the time do customers actually agree that the vendor doesn't indemnify. In other words, vendors indemnify 92% of the time for something. So this is one of those things that if you're the lawyer, it's like, okay, now I've got the market data to suggest that if I recommend, you know, I need to flag this for my customer. Like this yes. is clearly sub-market and ding, ding, ding. This is one of those things that I just want to make sure I'm not missing. So you've got this term sheet. My favorite feature in Zag, I don't think you've seen this yet, but the rare clause radar is a new feature we just launched. And it's really hyper-focused on answering that question of what are the rarest things in this contract sorted by who they favor. So I've got a list now that's rank ordered roughly by the severity of how good or bad it is for the party and the market data. And I can see, you know, here's my hit list if I'm reviewing this contract as a customer of the, the things in this contract that I wanna make sure that I look at and at least talk to my client about, right? No exceptions to the cap on vendor's liability, customer indemnifies vendor for claims based on any breach of the contract, You've got some market data here to help you understand how rare these things are. You've got a lot more market data in the side panel if you want. But you've got this hit list and you've got the few things that favor the customer. Again, just the fact that there are 23 rare clauses favoring the vendor and only two rare clauses favoring the customers says a lot about this contract. Um, liability is unlimited. Vendors is a varying liability cap. You know, you've got a lot of really interesting data served up to you really quickly right here. I'll show two more features here. Playbooks. Well, hold on a second. I think there's every reason for every companies who are watching this, I assume are just going to get in touch. It's a great product. But I want to pause for a minute and I want to go back to the original question that I asked you that set off this whole what is term stout business in the first place, which was I asked we had the refrigeration companies that made a lot of money and then the companies that made money because refrigeration existed like Coca-Cola. Where do you see Term Scout? Are you building refrigeration or do you think you're 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 more in line with the Coca-Cola? We're much closer to Coca-Cola right now. In that metaphor, we are we're taking really incredible technology, OpenAI's technology right now, and we're building the best solutions we can build. And we're combining, we're taking it the last, not the last, a lot more than the last mile, because there's a lot happening under the hood here to be able to do all of this, right? We're bringing in market data, we're fine tuning, we're making judgments using sophisticated subject matter experts to make judgments about what needs to be looked for, what's good, what's bad. There's a lot of value added on top of the refrigeration layer. And, you know, if you'd asked me this question nine months ago, Zach, I would have told you the truth is we're doing both because there wasn't an off-the-shelf AI model that, that was as sophisticated as GPT-4. I mean, that's just the truth, right? But then GPT-4 came out, it passed the bar, <laughs> you know, better than 90% of bar takers. Right. And it passed the LSAT. And we had some AI models that we had been working on and building and training in-house for a long time that were getting remarkable results, frankly, we have some in-house AI models that are still outperforming GPT-4 on a handful of questions. The problem is it takes us a lot to go train those, right? It's a, you know, it's a big investment. So we've effectively made a pivot towards Coca-Cola. Look, if someone else can build the technology underpinnings, if we don't have to build the refrigerator, great. We don't want to. We want to focus on our core mission is delivering solutions that help people understand contracts and make smarter, faster decisions about them. And if I can avoid building refrigerators, I absolutely want to. Right. And it sounds like from the example that you gave before, which is that you had two contract types that you were dealing with, and now you're at 10 it's so quickly, that, that suggests to me that there's, there's really exponential progress taking place here, um, both because of what the AI is capable in doing in terms of contracts. I mean, like old legacy AI. And it's crazy that I call it that because we're talking about companies that 
by some measures, probably still look at themselves as startups that have built what I would call legacy AI at this point. I know for a fact, as I spoke to the users of these products, that a lot of times they had to train these models every time they looked at a new corpus of contracts, right? So yeah. if they were, you know, looking at a manufacturer's contracts and they took that same AI models and tried to take it and to review the contracts of even another manufacturer for that, for that matter, a lot of the time the AI had to be retrained and very often was completely unaware that it was looking at a contract, right? So the sort of legacy AI that has been out there is just seems like leagues behind what is possible now. I agree. I think if you're if you're not leveraging GPT-4 right now, it's very surprising to me because the technology really is quite spectacular. The other point that I wanted to make also, and I'm curious how this is affecting you as well, is as not just lawyers. I'm speaking to developers and software engineers, and they say that it's changed their lives. I mean, the top developers, 10X developers who I speak with say things that used to take me months, I can get done in hours, right? So the exponential progress is not just on like the AI for legal. It's also in, honestly, your developer team ability to, to ship product. It's engineers. Uh, by the way, our entire engineering team is using it to support code, to do quality assurance on code for all sorts of operational support in just their normal day-to-day -day software coding, developing uh, operations. We're seeing it on the marketing side of the house too. I mean, I don't think there are many knowledge worker fields out there that aren't going to be dramatically touched by this technology. And if you are a knowledge worker in particular, someone who spends a lot of time on a computer, if you're not actively experimenting with how this technology can improve your day-to-day -day life and improve your output and improve your quality, you know, you're falling asleep at the wheel a little bit and you should be playing with this. We, we paused our whole company. I think it was back, it was in early April. We bought a chat GPT plus subscription for everyone in the company. And we said to everybody, no matter what you do, you should be experimenting with this in your personal life. You should be experimenting with this in your professional life and asking yourself constantly, how can I use this to level us up as a company? And people have taken that seriously. We've done AI lunch events where we do a kind of show and tell and people show and yeah. share different uses of not just ChatGPT, but all the other applications that are coming and being built on top of it or adjacent to it, because we were in just a renaissance of AI. One of the main recommendations I've made to, to, to companies and clients is exactly that, have show and tell incentives incentivize people to bring their best use cases and show how they're using it. Because I think there's this, this, you know, initial experience where you're like, wow, that's really cool. And then you're like, wait, does that do what I do better? And I, there's a kind of a come to Jesus moment with that. I think show and tell is a great way to amplify your organization's use of tools like these. I also think that it's so interesting. You said professional and personal because a lot of lawyers that I speak to, you know, say something to the effect of, well, I'm not going to use it to draft a contract or to draft a brief. And I say, okay, but there's a lot of things that you do during your day that are not specifically legal tasks, right? Like the example I love to give is trying to copy and paste text from a PDF to a Word doc. Everyone has done this. It's so frustrating to like get it formatted. It's just lots of backspaces and enters and enter and backspaces. It's an incredibly frustrating process. Today, you copy and paste text from a PDF to a Word doc, and it looks ridiculous. You enter that text into chat GPT. You say, chat GPT, this is PDF. It knows what it is. You say, clean this up. It immediately knows what it's looking at and does that for you in seconds. So yeah, maybe you're not drafting uh, a memorandum in support of summary judgment, you know, with with Chat GPT. But let's say thirty percent of your other tasks you may be able to get done significantly quicker. And so you know, the fact that that your entire team is using it is, is super interesting. So in other words, it's like not just that it's like empowering Term Scout the product to go 
where it hasn't gone before and to do things that you thought would only be available in five years, but it's also powering your team to achieve like productivity and creativity that they simply may not have been able to do beforehand. Yes. And I think there's a framing problem with all of this too, which is just the name artificial intelligence to me is a bad brand for this technology because it has these like threatening overtones and people keep asking, oh, is it going to replace my job? Can it do my job better? And in 99% of instances, I, you know, I think the answer is no, it can't do your job better. The real question though is, can it help me do my job better? And in 99% of cases, I think the answer is absolutely yes. And so if we just reframed the discussion away from what can it do for me to how can it support me? Then we get into a much more productive conversation and a much less threatening conversation because the reality is human intelligence does still have a lot of very clear advantages, experience, real world experience, and you know the knowledge of the relationships in the organization and so many other things that we don't Th have to Thinking live. and thinking from first principles. Totally. And so it for us, it really is a matter of just getting really clear about the reality that we're just looking for ways to boost productivity and make us smarter and make us broader and help us see around corners, crunch numbers faster, whatever it is. And there are lots and lots of opportunities for that. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because it's, it's part of the reason we invested in Term Scout was we were very impressed with you and not trying to like make you blush or anything. But I think there's something that's super interesting and people who are listening to this podcast, I think will hear it once I say it as well, which is, I know you were a lawyer because it's part of your story, but you just don't sound like a lawyer. You really sound like an entrepreneur. And I'm curious if I spoke to a younger version of you, did you at one point in your life sound more like a lawyer. And I want to just give some context for that. I've met with a lot of legal technology companies and I've met with a lot of legal technology companies that were started by former practicing attorneys. And very often I found that they were very, very strong on the practicing attorney side, but like it took them some time to learn how to communicate and persuade and execute like a startup founder. And with you, it was almost hard for me to believe that you had ever been an attorney because you seemed so natural with it. Was that learned or was that just something like that's innate with you? Well, first, thank you for the compliments and the flattering remarks. I'm, I'm humbled and you know grateful for, for the perspective and the compliments. Look, I don't know. This is one of those things where I think we just, we have our blind spots and how we're perceived is one of those, how we're perceived by the public. But what I can say is, I think I was a bit awkward in the law firm. Yeah, you know, I do think that I think in a slightly different way. And I really did enjoy practicing law. I enjoyed a lot of aspects about it. The intellectual challenges of the practice of law, I found to be really, really engaging and exciting. And I embraced the constant puzzles of trying to figure out how this law applies to this set of facts and how to craft a solution that accomplishes the business objectives. And, you know, all of that stuff is just, it's the the stuff of just great, great challenges. And I always found that to be very stimulating. But I also do think that I was a bit of an odd bird in the corporate law firm environment, you know, and I remember uh, one example that comes to mind is we we were producing some deliverables that were going to be templatized and given to startup companies. We did a lot of startup representation. And so, you know, rather than making it just a normal Word document, I I got like a PowerPoint slide formatted in portrait mode. So it looked like a page, but so that you could put some imagery and some graphics in it and make it actually like a much more exciting document. And I put it together and I had a lot of fun with it and showed it around. And, and I, you know, the attitude was kind of like, you know, that's just not really done that often. It's not, it's very unique. You know, and that was kind of a bad thing in the practice of law. And this is not it, enough. It is hard to explain to people that law firm attorneys like already are overwhelmed and intimidated by PowerPoint. And and again, I'm not making fun. It's it's not really part of the training, but it is new enough. And, and I, I know that I've seen this before. I've shown lawyers slides. It didn't take that long for us to build. 
and they were just blown away by them. Like, wow. And I'm like, guys, with a designer organized some logos effectively. I don't say this to them, but I'm thinking in the back of my head while they're like ooing and awing at these slides. It's like, this is, this is way less difficult than some of the work that you do as an attorney. But it, I, I think it's fun. That's why I'm, I'm smiling as you tell the story about a PowerPoint that would have been perceived as like, you know, so new and fresh, something that is basically a part of every single project ever done at a marketing agency by comparison. Totally. And it was a marketing-esque document. For me, it's just an illustration of the fact that I think my mindset is like what I like doing is I love process innovation. I love thinking in frameworks. I like, you know, I love the intellectual challenges of the specific things, but what I really love is thinking about what's the scalable version that actually levels us up a notch and then a notch again. And frankly, that's how I got into Term Scout. I, you know, I had that experience that I shared earlier with this client that, you know, was so explicit about how aggressive he wanted to be with his contract. But I also had other experiences where like one client sent me the Salesforce standard agreement. And then a month later, another one did. And I looked around and I was like, oh, wow, if I just got this contract twice, how many other lawyers in Denver, how many other lawyers in Colorado and in the United States are reviewing the same contract over and over? How inefficient is that? Right. And these are public contracts. And it just kind of like a macro view of the whole thing. Totally. And when you start to think about that stuff, I, for me, it's really hard not to start thinking about, well, isn't there a better way? And there's got to be a better way. And so I think I got lucky because, as you know, I wasn't planning on starting a business. Once I got into the law firm, I was I was doing well by most measures and enjoying it. And I loved the firm that I practiced at. And the partners that I worked with were just really great mentors. And I wasn't trying to leave, but all those ideas were swimming around in my head. And I stumbled on this global legal hackathon really for business development purposes. I was thinking, hey, you know, part of my job is to go and meet people and engage in the community and try to bring new clients into the firm. And so I went to this legal technology hackathon and ended up participating and ended up pitching this idea and ended up winning and then winning on regionals and then winning the global finals. And it was like, oh, people like this idea that we concocted that hadn't even been incepted prior to this hackathon. But the hackathon took this, I think you're right, entrepreneurial spirit, put it in the right conditions to let the entrepreneurship blossom for a weekend. And then a couple of months through, was the whole course of this hackathon. And by the end of it, you know, got some real good feedback back from three panels of judges who all said, yes, yes, thumbs up all around. This guy needs to go do this. So I want to, I want to ask you two more questions. The first is be, because you're now sort of term scout on steroids because, because you incorporated LLM large language models, you know, into what you're doing right now, when you started this company, I feel like you had a really, really specific focus vendor side IT agreements and purchasers who are reviewing. And I know why you started there today is term scout only relevant for in-house legal departments, or is it now relevant for other parties? Great question. The way that I think about it is we built the tool primarily today to serve contract professionals, right? We want to serve everyone. Our vision is to enable anyone with a lease agreement or a stock option agreement, any kind of B2C contracts to get value out of the tool as well. But that's a big bridge to cross. What a average consumer needs to understand and the type of handholding they need to understand a contract is a lot different than what someone who deals with contracts day in and day out needs. And so today the tool really is calibrated for contract professionals most of whom work in-house, but we are starting to cross the Rubicon of, of adding in agreement types that work for consumers as well. Less because we want to go out and grab a bunch of consumers, more because we've heard from customers who use it in their professional lives for their whatever agreements and say, gosh, I really wish I could have ran my lease agreement through it too. We see people uploading lease agreements, you know, and it doesn't right. work super well right now. So we're launching a handful of our first B2C contract capabilities uh, next month and we'll see how it goes. So my last question for you is what has been the impact of the AI tailwinds for you? 
because one other thing I've heard from other startups is that initially going into this year, they were expecting to have a very sort of difficult year, you know, down economy, uncertainty, budget cuts. But they said that the last six months have really changed things and that there is now massive corporate appetite for AI and in particular AI for legal, because if you're paying attention to the mainstream news headlines, not just to like legal tech news and artificial lawyer, but if you are reading the news, the one area that seems to get circled very often is like, wow, these large language models are really going to impact legal professionals. What has been the tailwind effect for Term Scout? Are you seeing this kind of like increased appetite? We are. And we're hearing from companies over and over again now that, you know, the GC is having weekly conversations with the CEO about how they're bringing AI into the organization. And therefore, the GC is having weekly conversations with their staff about what they're doing. And the staff are out finding the solutions. And yes, it's a really exciting time to be an AI company, in particular, a contract AI company. One of the pieces that's also really interesting that I hadn't anticipated is that it's not just the companies themselves, but also the providers that service those companies. So the ALSPs, for example, the staffing agencies, the entire sort of ecosystem is starting to look around and say, how can we incorporate AI into what we're doing? And so we're getting a lot of interest and projects from ALSPs, for example, who are coming to us and saying, you know, we're really getting a lot of questions from our customers and we really like TermScout. We really like what you do. And we really like one thing that's unique about TermScout is we're more of a point solution that's a lot easier for a partner like an ALSP to offer a managed service on top of. You know, it's you can't really do that with a, a CLM that's sort of like a very much an in-house tool, you know, a big enterprise solution. But for what TermScout's doing, like, you can offer a managed service where TermScout brings the contract AI and technology to add the efficiencies, see around the corners, make sure you're not missing anything, bring the market data. And then an ALSP can bring in the consulting services to build on top of that a managed service. Uh, yeah, it looks really QC. Getting a lot of exciting interest there. And I think that's starting to look like it might be a big part of our business. Otto, how can people learn more about TermScout? Check out our website, our website www.termscout.com for more information. Also follow us on LinkedIn. We post lots of market data and other fun things yeah. on LinkedIn I, to try to help and, share. And I was I was hoping that you would mention because that's what I was going to say is if you're not following the the TermScout LinkedIn account is a must follow especially for contract professionals. Every week they are releasing awesome data about contracts and great, great resource. So I highly encourage you to follow them on LinkedIn as well as visiting TermScout Auto. Awesome talking to you. And uh, we, we like to catch up every now and then anyway. So good to good to do it on video this time. And uh, super interesting points and give me a lot, of, a lot to think about. This was really fun, Zach. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. Thank you for tuning in to Zach Abramowitz's Legally Disrupted. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. La, 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 everybody. La, 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 la.